did you know you could have that much fun in church? We're having the most fun, aren't we? All right. I'm going to try to blow this thing. I had a few practice runs. A few of them went well and a few didn't. So if you wouldn't mind throwing up a prayer for me right now. This is the sound we're waiting for. I want you to picture the heavenly scene as God, through his voice, the sound of the trumpet is calling us to heaven. This is what it's going to be like. Oh, praise the Lord. And I'm so glad that you all came out for our Feast of Trumpets celebration. Are you having fun so far? Me too. Me too. I also want to welcome all of our guests. I know that at our feast, we attract um, believers from various tribes. And I love that. You know, if you're from, you're visiting from another church or something like that, it, it really is fitting because at Israel's feasts, all the tribes would come together and they would come together for the express purpose of worshiping the Lord together. So can we just welcome those who are visiting tonight? And by the way, those of you who are new, you got to come back next Sunday because we're going to be celebrating the next fall feast, which is the Day of Atonement. I'm going to take our weekend services and I'm going to look at what God's word has to say about the holiest day in Israel's year, uh, the, the, the celebration of Yom Kippur. So be here for that. But tonight is all about the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, which is one of seven feast that God instructed his people to celebrate annually. It's a day associated with the joy of the, the full ingathering of the harvest, as well as the, the start of the new spiritual year. It's interesting because even though this feast falls on the first day of the seventh month, Jews recognize it as the beginning of the spiritual new year. In fact, they will often greet one another. It's typical to greet one another on this day by saying Lashana Tova, which means good year. So can we just practice that together? I'll say it to you and you respond to me. Lashana Tova. Very good class. You're all advanced in your Hebrew studies. You're ready for the next course. But anyway, we're in a brand new Hebrew year. It's the year 5784 in the Jewish calendar. Now, here's what's interesting about that. 5784. Now, the number four in Hebrew culture, it often correlates to a door. Four rhymes with door. That's what it often symbolizes. Now, I find significance in that. You see, in, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus wrote to the church at Philadelphia, and this is what he said to them. He said, I'm setting before you an open door, and no man can shut it. Now, this is beautiful. I believe God in the Spirit is wanting to communicate with his church that he is opening a door of opportunity for us to share the love of Jesus with the world around us like never before. So you need to have your ears open. You need to have your eyes open so that you're looking for doors of opportunity to share the love of the Lord. That's what this year is all about. Praise the Lord. Now, as I just mentioned, the Feast of Trumpets is one of seven feasts that Israel celebrates annually. Now, the first four occur 
in the springtime. And then there's a gap. And the final three, which are kicked off by the Feast of Trumpets, happen in the fall. Now, there are all kinds of good reasons to celebrate and to study the feasts of the Lord. But let me tell you why we as a church, this is something my father who founded this church brought us into and now I'm caring forward. This is why we celebrate the feasts. We do it because we believe the feasts of the Lord hold the key to understanding God's plan for the redemption of the world. In other words, if you're curious about where we are on the prophetic timetable, if you're curious about where things are heading and where this whole thing is going, then you better familiarize yourself with the feasts of the Lord. Let me show you really quickly what I mean. The first feast in the Jewish year is the feast of Passover. And in this feast, the Jews celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of their ancestors in a dramatic way. God had each family take a sacrificial lamb and apply its blood to the, the doorposts of their home. And whenever the angel of death saw the blood applied to the home, he would pass over that house. And that's how the feast got its name. But when we look at that feast through the lens of Jesus, what we discover is that Passover was all about him. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. His blood applied to the doorposts of our hearts is what causes the angel of death to pass over. So Passover is all about Jesus. Say it's all about Jesus. Praise the Lord. So too with the second feast on Israel's calendar, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what the Jewish people do to celebrate this is they get rid of all the leaven in their house. Now, this, too, points to Jesus. You see, Jesus was buried. He was crucified on Passover on the day, but then he was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in the Bible, leaven is often associated with or symbolizes sin. Jesus came down from heaven. He said, I am the bread of life. He was without sin, and he came to deal with the leaven or sin in us so that when we put our faith in him, his righteousness is gifted to us. Jesus fulfills the feast of unleavened bread. Somebody again say, it's all about Jesus. <laughs> Three days after Passover, you arrive at the third feast on the Jewish calendar, which is the Feast of First Fruits. Can anybody in here think of something significant that happened three days after Jesus was crucified? Yeah, of course. The resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. Paul calls him the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. Now, that's good news to us. This is what we celebrate on Easter. And because he's the first fruits, that signifies there's more to come. And that's the hope that we carry as believers, that because he lives, we too shall live. You see, the, first, the feast of first fruits is all about Jesus. Somebody say, it's all about Jesus. That brings us to the fourth feast on the Jewish calendar, which is the feast of Pentecost. Now, this feast happens 50 days after the feast of first fruits. And Pentecost is where Jews would celebrate the initial ingathering of the harvest. Now, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, the Holy Spirit gets poured out and Peter stands up to a large crowd and 
About 3,000 people, about this many people get saved in one moment. It's the initial harvest. The Spirit is poured out on the very day of Pentecost. And so we get a, 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 an idea of what God's plan for the redemption of the world is by looking at the feasts. Now, after Pentecost, there's a long gap before the next feast. During this time, the Jews would leave Jerusalem and they would head back home and they would tend to their businesses and they would work in their fields. And then after the final harvest had been gathered, they would then return to Jerusalem to celebrate the fifth feast, which is the Feast of Trumpets. That's what we're here to talk about tonight. Now let's talk for a minute about trumpets because they figure prominently in many of the stories in your Bible. For instance, we know that, that when the law was given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, you remember the, the Ten Commandments and the two tablets of stone and all that. When the, the Ten Commandments were given, they were given with the blast of a ram's horn or a shofar. So too, when Israel marched around the walls of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down when the Jews lifted the horns to their mouths and they began to blow. And it was the sound of the trumpets that brought down those walls. And again, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, when he, in obedience, took his only son Isaac to the top of a mountain called Moriah and he was about to sacrifice him, God provided a substitute for Isaac in the form of a ram who was caught by its horn. And so the horn speaks of all of these things. It speaks of God's deliverance, God's might, God's salvation, and God's power. And yet, while all the stories I just mentioned highlight the, the trumpet or the horn in, in some unique way, none of them feature the, the, the trumpet more prominently than the Feast of Trumpets. For on this day, everything is about the trumpet. You see, on other occasions, the priest might blow a trumpet once or a couple of times to bring in a, a celebration. But on the Feast of Trumpets, they would blow the, the trumpet 100 times. Let me read to you out of Leviticus 23, 24. This is in your notes. In fact, well, let's go ahead and read it out loud together. This gives us God's outline for what you're to do on this feast. Let's read it out loud. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. All right, so here's where we learn a little bit about this feast and how God wants it to be celebrated. We learn that it's a day of rest. Nobody's supposed to work on this day, so if you went to work, shame on you. This is about hanging out and fellowshipping. Also, it's a day for memorializing everything that God did through the blowing of the shofar. And there are about four other references to this feast scattered throughout the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. In all of those references, we don't really get a whole lot more information on how God wants this feast to be celebrated. To be sure, out of all of the feasts, there are seven of them. This is the one we know least about. Even the day that it's supposed to be celebrated on is cloaked in mystery. That's because the feast coincides with the first moon of the new month. Now, when the moon is new, it's just a tiny little sliver. And so you might not even be able to tell, is that the new moon or is it not? And so they would plan the feast over the course of two days. It all depends on when the moon arrives. I mean, imagine how difficult that is for someone who's planning a party. When are you supposed to buy the, the cake and the balloons and everything else if you don't know when it starts? In fact, due to the ambiguous nature of this feast, it actually came to be known, this is one of the names for this feast, as Yom Hakaseh, 
which means the feast of the hidden day. Very interesting. Concerning this feast, Jews would often say, of that day and hour, no one knows when it starts. Now, here's the question I want to consider for just a few minutes with you. Why would God shroud one of Israel's main feasts in mystery? Why would he make it so that you couldn't even be sure when it began? You couldn't even plan for that. And why, for that matter, did he build an entire feast around the blowing of trumpets? And those are some good questions. And I believe a few of the answers might actually be found in an Old Testament passage. You see, by going back and looking at how trumpets were used in the Old Testament, we can gain insight into what God is wanting to communicate to us through this feast. So let me just read to you from Numbers chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read verses 9 and 10. This is what it said. The Lord said to Moses, make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camp set out. That's verses 1 and 2. Now in verse 9, when you go into battle or when you go into the land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpet. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Notice in these verses, God, he specifies four different times when the trumpet is to be blown. Number one, he says, blow the trumpet to gather the community. Number two, he says, blow the trumpets when you're going to set out to a new location. Number three, he says, blow the trumpets to prepare the army for war. And then fourthly, he says, blow the trumpets to bring in the celebration. Now, here's what I find super interesting about each of those four uses. They all seem to line up perfectly with an event that is described in a handful of spots in the New Testament. It's something we call the rapture of the church. Can I tell you guys about the rapture of the church? Because I believe that is the key that unlocks the meaning behind the Feast of Trumpets. You see, like the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture is an event that's more or less shrouded in a lot of mystery. Now, the word rapture comes from a Latin term that means to be caught up, caught up. And so it describes this event in which God comes down for his church and calls her up into his presence. Let's read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what the apostle Paul had to say about this mysterious event called the rapture. Let's read this together out loud. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Yes. A couple of things stick out to me from what Paul says here. The first thing is, notice how he calls it a mystery. And as I said, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this event called the rapture of the church. But of all the mysteries surrounding the rapture, none is bigger than the timing. Like we all want to know when is the rapture happen? And that's where the Bible is a bit fuzzy. 
There are camps that say that it's going to happen prior to the tribulation period, which is described in the book of Revelation. Others say it happens in the middle. Others say it happens towards the end. And I don't know that we're going to get to the bottom of that tonight, but one thing we know for sure is that it happens sometime prior to the second coming. Okay, I got to teach for a minute. So tune in. Because I think it's easy to get the rapture confused with the second coming. And while there are some similarities, both are about Jesus, both are about the end times, there are also some notable differences that I think it's important that we understand so we really have a grasp about what these events signify. For instance, in the rapture, believers are caught up into the, the, the clouds to meet the Lord. Whereas in the second coming, Jesus comes down to the earth. Notice the difference. One, we're going up. The other, Jesus is coming down. In the rapture, here's a second difference. Jesus comes for his church to bring us to heaven. In the second coming, Jesus comes with his church to the earth. One more difference I want to point out for your consideration. In the rapture, we know that that's imminent. Now, that's a big word, but what does it mean? Imminent means that it can happen in a minute, any minute. It could happen right now. Nothing is precluding the, rapture, the event of the rapture of the church, whereas there are some certain things that have to happen still before the second coming of Jesus. All right, so now we've talked about the time, and let's talk about what's going to happen in the rapture. And this is where we discover that through Paul's writings, in the rapture, believers, this is something that is for believers, believers are going to be caught up into the Lord's presence. This is what Paul had in mind when he said, we're not all going to sleep, but we'll all be changed. I've had someone point out to me, that'd be a great verse to put in like our nursery ministry, right? We are not all going to sleep, but we'll all be changed, right? <laughs> now, when, when Paul talks about we're not all going to sleep in the Bible, Sleep is often a euphemism for death. And so he's saying, there's going to be a generation of believers who don't experience death, but they will be instantaneously changed. And in saying that, Paul is describing this transformation our bodies are going to go through when we're caught up into the presence of the Lord and we get our new heavenly bodies. It works like this. Right now, you have a physical body that corresponds pretty well to the physical body universe in which you live. So you have things like sight and sound and smell and all touch and all the taste and all the rest. And, and it allows you to interact with the world around you. Well, your new heavenly upgraded version of your body, praise the Lord, that body is going to correspond with your new heavenly reality. And so there's this moment where we're going to be caught up into the presence of the Lord. And Paul says this transformation will happen in the twinkling of an eye. You know, when you see somebody that catches your eye, it's like, wow, they have a twinkle in their eye. It's, it's when the light just catches your eye and it causes it to shine. My dad was always fond of pointing out that, that a twinkle is actually faster than a blink. He was saying that you could blink and by the time you would close your eyes and then open to them to moisten your eyes, you know, it's just something that happens automatically. We don't have to think about it. You blink. And by the time you close your eyes and open them, if the rapture happens, you will have already been in heaven for a little while. And my dad concluded that a twinkle is faster than a blinkle, which I just always love that. <laughs> now, here's another thing I find intriguing about what Paul says. He says this whole event called the rapture is going to be triggered by the blowing of a trumpet. Did you catch that? 
Earlier in that passage in Numbers, I identified four different reasons for blowing the trumpet. Now, it's incredible as each one of those things perfectly describes what happens in the rapture. What happens? We're all going to be caught up. We're gathered together with believers from previous generations at the sound of the trumpet. Our bodies are transformed so that they correspond perfectly with our new heavenly reality. Then once we're in heaven, the Bible says that's going to trigger a seven-year period of tribulation down here on earth. That will culminate with a battle, a war, if you will, called the battle of Armageddon, good class. And meanwhile, while war and hell is breaking out on earth, the church is going to be in heaven with the Lord celebrating for seven years in a honeymoon phase called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we see these four different things. We're gathered together. We're setting out. We're going to a new location. We're rejoicing. And it's a declaration of war. And all of this happens, according to Paul, at the last trump. Remember how I said there were a hundred trumpet blasts on the Feast of Trumpets, which was different than any other feast? Now, the first 99 of those were short staccato blasts, just like boop, 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 boop. But by the time you got to the last one, it was, um, I think it's called the Yom Terah. Did I get that right? The Yom Terah? Yom, yom Terah. Teru. Okay. I think we're close enough. And it's the final trump, the last trump. And it's long and it's sustained. Now, here's what I think. I think what we've been seeing happening in the world around us on a global stage, they're like those little short staccato blasts that are letting us know we're getting closer to the last trump. I mean, think about what's happening. These things are like wake-up calls. And it's time for the church to wake up. Paul said it like this, amen, in Romans 13. And I want us to read this out loud. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of life. Amen. The night is almost over. The day is almost here. And God keeps sending his church wake-up call after wake-up call. You ever get that alarm in the morning? You hit snooze. Three minutes later, five minutes later, whatever it is, snooze. God's sending alarm after alarm, wake-up call after wake-up call. COVID was a wake-up call. Somebody say Amen. The war between Russia and Ukraine, that's another wake-up call. The earthquakes that we see happening in our world, the famines, the wars, the pestilence, the fire, these are all wake-up calls. And now let me give you the biggest wake-up call of them all. It happened back on May 14th, 1948. Does anybody know what happened on that particular day? Israel. After 2,000 years of not being a nation, is declared a nation again. They were revived out of the ashes of World War II in Nazi Germany, and they declared their statehood. That is a sign to the world and to us as God's bride that we are living on borrowed time. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. So the church needs to get ready. Somebody say amen. amen. We're getting close to that 100th call. So let me ask the million or maybe billion dollar question. 
when is all this going to happen? And I have to tell you that like the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture is a mysterious hidden day. You see, when Jesus' disciples asked him about the timing of his return, he said this, about that day and hour, no one knows. So we can't know the day and the hour. And yet, the same Jesus who said we can't know the day or the hour said we shouldn't be unaware of the days and the times and the seasons. You see, Jesus scolded those who could accurately predict weather patterns based on what the sky was doing the night before, but couldn't discern the prophetic times in which they were living. You see, there's this gap. Remember I talked about how there's a gap between the fourth feast, the feast of Pentecost, and the fifth feast, which is the feast of trumpets. And there's this long gap. And what was happening during that gap? The harvest. Listen, friends. We, for the last 2,000 years, have been living in that gap. We've been living in the season of harvest. It's as though right now we have this window of opportunity to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with as many people as possible. And God has been taking his time because he's patient. He's not slack concerning his promise, but he's long suffering, not willing that any should perish. But let me tell you this, if you're playing games, there is a number and there is that final person. And that day is coming soon when God is going to decide that the harvest is complete. And when that decision is made, the trump of God will sound. And we who are alive shall be caught up into the clouds and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to celebrate with God's people. Praise the Lord. And I want to get back to worship because this whole night for me is about this, this next worship set. But I want to leave you with this. In Revelation chapter 4, John provides us with a glimpse of what that event is going to be like when it transpires, how it's going to play out. And, and it happens right on the heels of these seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. Many theologians think these seven letters correspond with different church ages. And, and then right after the church age, this is what it says. Let's read this together out loud. It's Revelation 4, 1 and 2. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. A couple of thoughts, I promise we're bringing this thing to a close. But I'm struck by a couple of things. Number one, I'm struck by the fact that John hears the voice of God. And what does it sound like? It sounds like a trumpet. That's telling. Now notice with me what the trumpet voice says. Come up here. I believe that's a reference to the rapture of the church. My ears are tuned. I'm listening. My heart is open. I'm waiting for the sound of the trumpet. And John hears it, and he gets this preview of coming attractions where he's caught up into heaven. Now, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in heaven. Would you agree with that? I mean, you've got streets of gold. You've got beautiful, angelic, divine creatures. You, you, you've got loved ones from previous generations that are all there. But John is captivated by one thing and one thing only. Did you catch it? He says, and there I saw a throne. 
and I saw the one who's sitting on the throne. And this is what really gets me, and this is what I wanted to communicate with you tonight. That really, at the end of the day, heaven's not heaven without Jesus. You see, after being caught up into the presence of the Lord, John's not tripping out on the angels. He's not tripping out on the the streets of gold. He's not tripping out on all the believers. But he's captivated by one thing and one thing alone, the throne of God. And it dominates the conversation for the next two chapters. He can't get away from the throne. And he describes these angels who worship before the throne. He describes these elders. These men of positions of authority who worship before the throne. At one point, he talks about an innumerable host of people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, and kindred. And guess what they're doing? They're surrounding the throne, and they're worshiping the king, and they're taking their crowns, and they're throwing them at Jesus' feet. And he talks about these angels in Revelation chapter 4. I think it's verse 8. And he says, these angels surround the throne. And you know what they say? Day in, day in, day Day in, day out, night and day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what's going on in heaven right now. And that's what's going to happen when we get there. That is your future if you are a child of God. One day soon, you're going to stand before the throne and you're going to fall down on your knees and you're going to take your crown and you're going to cast it at Jesus' feet. And we're going to sing, oh, man, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. But here's the thing, church, and I love to point this out. We're going to get there. We're going to do that. That is your future. But we don't have to wait till then to do it. We get to sing it tonight. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I'm going to invite the worship team back out. Lord, we thank you for your church. We are your church. We are your bride. You have our hearts tonight, Lord. And our eyes are singularly focused on one thing, the king. You know, it's easy to get your eyes on the stuff. It's easy to get your eyes on your circumstances. It's easy to get your eyes on yourself. It's easy to get your eyes on how you're feeling and how on how things haven't worked out the way you hoped that they would and and how you wished life would be different than the way that it's played out or the the hand you've been dealt. And the king is in the room. Somebody say amen. The king is in the room and he's inviting you in this moment to take your eyes and to lift them, to lift your eyes and to cast your gaze upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. You put your eyes on Jesus and you let him take care of all the stuff. You put your eyes on Jesus and you trust that he is with you. You trust that he is for you. And when you see him on the throne, I promise you this, whatever you were worried about, Whatever was causing you fits moments ago, that will cease to matter when you get in the presence of the King of Kings. So I'm going to invite everyone in this moment to stand to your feet. We're going to worship the King.
We're going to get our eyes on Jesus. We're going to cast our crowns. We're going to join the song of the Lamb. We're going to join the host of heaven. And we're going to sing worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy. Let's worship Jesus together. Let's worship him now.